This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Chris Seatons. Congress hears bombshell testimony today that former President Donald Trump tried to join the mob, the mob attacking the Capitol on January 6th, and that he knew his supporters were armed when it happened and the violence was possible. We're going to go in-depth on the stunning account by a former White House insider as we assess the political and legal impact. Also, a deal struck today with Turkey. This will allow Finland and Sweden to join NATO. It will also help uh, unite the front against Russia. The human smuggling tragedy in Texas. At least 50 migrant workers die. We'll get the latest from San Antonio. Looking at the two big drugstore chains, rationing emergency contraception, now that Roe v. Wade is history, and COVID now harder to avoid and much, much easier to catch. We begin today with the high drama at the hearing of the January 6th committee. Cassidy Hutch and former aide to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows describing the former President Donald Trump trying to take over the wheel of a vehicle driving away from the rally of his supporters on January 6th. President reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. With us now is Jack Pitney, political analyst at uh, Claremont McKenna College. Jack, thank you for joining us on In-Depth today. This sounds like damning testimony. Your thoughts on what we heard today? Uh, damning is an understatement. Uh, there is a good case that the president could be charged with seditious conspiracy. He knew that the mob was armed. Uh, the testimony made that very clear. And he sent an armed mob to the U.S. Capitol, told them to fight. Uh, we've never heard anything like that about an American president, and this is unlike any congressional hearing uh, I've ever witnessed. Yeah, people were going into this almost, I think, a little bit uh, trying to minimize, saying, hey, we're not getting a smoking gun moment. This isn't going to be a huge bombshell witness, although she's very, very close. But I mean, this was worth the unplanned hearing. And I saw one reporter uh, tweet out, genuinely don't know what the lead is because there was so much that happened here. Uh, that's right. Uh, the seditious conspiracy is one part of it. Uh, his reckless disregard for the lives of uh, the people and, and the Capitol, another uh, agreeing with the crowd that uh, chanted, hang Mike Pence. Uh, and uh, the story about uh, potentially assaulting a Secret Service officer. I don't know if he could be charged for that, but uh, that's obviously going to be one of the things that gets attention and is consistent with his disregard for the lives of the people who served him. Could today's testimony be enough to push Merrick Garland to get the Justice Department involved now? Uh, I think that's entirely possible. We don't know what the Justice Department knows. It's very possible that they are already in possession of a lot of the relevant evidence. Uh, but I think uh, looking at the witness, looking at the way people are reacting to this, I think it makes a Trump indictment more likely, surely makes an indictment of the people around Trump much more likely. You think they try and get more people there live? I mean, Patsy Bologna's ears must be burning, right? He apparently warned everybody, if we send that crowd that way, we're all going to be facing charges. Uh, that's right. And that was uh, the hidden message of today's uh, testimony, that uh, the committee knows a lot. And uh, for potential witnesses, and uh, the chairman alluded to this in his closing statement, uh, potential witnesses know that uh, they'll probably be better off if they talk now uh, rather than uh, if they wait until there's a final report. Uh, so this is all far from over. Pat Cipollone, do, tell me, do you think he'll eventually testify? Will he come forward and maybe be the 2022 version of John Dean? 
Uh, I think that's possible. Uh, he is trying to claim that uh, his position as an attorney for the White House uh, gives him a privilege. But uh, when you're facing the potential for, uh, at very least, professional ruin, uh, that might end up changing his mind. So the question we always ask, does this actually permeate to the Trump supporters? Though I was watching some Fox and Brett Baer was up there describing the testimony, said it was stunning, compelling, uh, presented it all. There were a couple other people on the panel with him. And then it was just silence for a few seconds, which awkward, uh, but no one knew quite what to say. So does that actually get through to people? Uh, perhaps, though, uh, I was tuning into Fox uh, now and then, and uh, they were talking about things like Hunter Biden. So for the hardcore MAGA audience, the people who watch nothing but Fox, this might not sink into them. Uh, but for the broader public, uh, the mainstream Republicans who maybe voted for Trump weren't terribly crazy about him. This will make an impression on them. Jack Pitney, political analyst, Claremont McKenna College. Let's get more on the bombshell testimony today at the uh, January 6th committee hearing, this hastily called hearing today uh, by a former White House insider. With us now, a member of the committee, Democratic Congressman uh, from Burbank, Adam Schiff. Uh, Mr. Schiff, thank you for joining us. We just talked a moment ago with political analyst Jack Pitney from Claremont McKenna College. He sounded quite shocked by what he heard in the testimony today. It doesn't get much more compelling than what uh, Cassidy Hutchinson had to say. Tell me, you're on the committee. You were there. How shocked were you by what you heard? Well, I found what was most significant, uh, and it is shocking, is that there is the President of the United States on the mall before the attack. The crowd has been assembled He's informed that uh, that people in the crowd are armed, that they won't go through the magnetometers because they don't want their weapons taken away. And his response is, take the magnetometers down. Uh, he wants to march to the Capitol with these people, knowing they're armed, but he says uh, they're not there to hurt him. Um, they're not going to harm him. Uh, and that's what he cares about. And he's indignant when he's told that he can't go to the Capitol. He gets in a scuffle in the White House uh, limousine or Suburban uh, he's determined to go, determined to lead this armed mob uh, to the Capitol. And and when they when they do uh, break into the Capitol, when they are beating police, when they're hanging, you know, when they're they're chanting "Hang Mike Pence," his response from the White House is that Pence deserves it. And so, if there was any question about his knowledge of the fact that the crowd was armed uh, and his willingness to use either violence or the threat of violence to stop the peaceful transfer of power, I think that question has been resolved. So, okay, so criminal culpability, seditious conspiracy, if we take it step by step, knows that violence is going to happen because there's been warnings, no supporters are armed, wants to go to the Capitol, can't go, so sends people there instead. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but you are. <laughs> well, yes, uh, but at, at the end of the day, it'll be up to the Justice Department uh, whether they investigate the former president. I have not seen signs yet that uh, the president himself is under investigation. Uh, certainly the people that broke into the Capitol, that assaulted police officers are. Um, but uh, but if the Justice Department was looking for evidence of the president's knowledge and intent, I think the department got a lot of that evidence today. Now, this was a hastily called hearing today. It was not scheduled until yesterday. You guys were not supposed to meet again until uh, July. Was there concern by the committee to get her to speak today because of the fact that she may be pressured to withdraw? We have been concerned um, with respect to a lot of our witnesses that uh, they be the subject of witness intimidation. 
Um, and we also want to make sure that we get information as, as important as this out to the public as soon as possible, both because the public should know, but also because it helps uh, lead to other witnesses. And we hope the courage that uh, Cassie Hutchinson uh, displayed today will encourage others to step forward. Uh, as she said, some of these conversations uh, were with White House counsel Pat Cipollone. Uh, he should come forward. Uh, it shouldn't be, you know, just people that uh, are at, uh, uh, you know, less than the principal positions that are, are willing to step forward and show patriotism. Uh, it ought to be the principals themselves. And, uh, and we wanted to also make this information public so that we could make use of it publicly uh, as we pursue other leads. And, uh, and so we felt a, a sense of urgency about it, um, but we are determined to push back against any effort to intimidate our witnesses. Uh, we take witness intimidation very, very seriously. Well, that was part of the end of the hearing, right? The vice chair, uh, Ms. Cheney, putting up that text messages. A uh, person, let me know about your deposition tomorrow. Uh, I know you'll be loyal, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, is that, is that intimidation? Well, you know, I, I think those kind of comments are certainly designed to uh, push a witness in a certain direction. Um, and, of course, we've seen, you know, the former president uh, uh, attack witnesses. He attacked uh, Hussey Katchen, uh, uh, he, he attacked uh, Cassie Hutchinson today um, uh, in his social media. He attacked Rusty Bowers, the Republican Arizona speaker, an hour before his testimony uh, in the hearing last week. Um, and, of course, there's a long pattern going back to his attacking Ambassador Marie Ivanovich during her testimony during the Ukraine hearings. Uh, so the president uh, and his enablers, you know, we have to be very concerned, um, are attempting to uh, influence uh, the witnesses. And, uh, and if that influence takes the form of threats, we're going to take that very seriously. So far, Pat Cipollone has refused to testify. Do you, do you have a gut feeling uh, in any way about whether or not he might change his mind, whether he may, as I put it to uh, Jack Pitney a moment ago, uh, try and be the, the John Dean of 2022 and come forward and, and, and speak with you? I don't know. Uh, you know, sadly, we have seen in the past that, uh, that people in senior positions often lack the courage of those uh, in less senior positions. John Bolton refused to testify, for example, uh, before the House, even though several of his aides were willing to come and do their patriotic duty. Uh, so this is not an unfamiliar story, um, and yet we hope that uh, watching the courage and patriotism of others will inspire them to do the right thing. But, uh, but I can't speak for what uh, Cipollone or others will do. Congressman Adam Schiff, Democrat from Burbank, on the committee. Congressman, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth with Chris Seedens today. I'm Mike Simpson. Well, coming up, we look at the latest fallout from the decision striking down Roe v. Wade as two drugstore chains ration sales of emergency contraception. And we look at the future of happiness Yes, happiness around the world. Right now, let's get the latest on the war in Ukraine. Deal is struck on the eve of the NATO summit to admit a couple new members. Joining us for, um, from Odessa in Ukraine is um, reporter Phil Idner. Phil, thanks for being back with us. So Turkey saying okay to Sweden and Finland coming in, uh, making this agreement. Is this another kind of backfire for Russia? Because if their whole thing was no new NATO members, now we've got a couple more. Yeah, it is a backfire for Russia, and it's not just the fact that there are two more members of the NATO alliance. It's where they're located geographically, because what you're looking at is the potential blocking off of one of their major naval bases in Kaliningrad there. And um, uh, that would mean 
potentially that they, in the space of about 18 months, uh, have lost a major base, which would give them access to the North Sea and Kaliningrad. But in addition to that, there is the open question of their Black Sea fleet. Now, Russia only has four um, naval fleets uh, with a kind of a third flotilla based in Syria. And so this is a major blow to their naval power, and it's something that Russia is uh, kind of emphasized for for quite some time, trying to become a major naval power. And so not only is it, it adding member states to NATO, but strategically and geographically very bad for them. Yeah, so there is reason for concern for Russia. Talk to us a little bit more about the reaction from, from Vladimir Putin. I remember when this was first brought up weeks ago, he tried to downplay it somewhat. Is that still somewhat the case? Well, he did try to downplay it, but at the same time, there were calls uh, within a number of sectors within Russia to move uh, Iskander uh, missiles, uh, medium-range uh, missiles that can carry nuclear warheads closer to the Finnish border. Um, and that's a lot of saber rattling. Uh, now, that was not done in official circles. That was done in the uh, Russian press. But there are certain, some more than others, but uh, certain uh, media organs in, in Russia where they, the Kremlin and the uh, Ministry of Defense kind of run things up the flagpole to see who salutes. So it's not wholly independent. Um, the, the Russians are not pleased with what is happening in, in the Baltic region, not, not least of which the addition of uh, new NATO member states, but also because Lithuania has been blocking off Kaliningrad. So um, they, are, they are suffering an awful lot of ramifications of their actions in Ukraine. Uh, but uh, regardless, they tend to... Um, respond with much more bolster whether or not that's realistic or not. There's some reporting today that the White House is is losing confidence that Ukraine's ever going to be able to take back all the land that it's lost to Russia and that maybe the President Zelensky needs to shift that definition of what a victory is. Um, but that's easier for them to say than it is for him to say. Well, that's right. Uh, and, and, you know, there's been a lot of talk about uh, at the end of the day, who should be negotiating a, a peace in Ukraine between the Russians and the Ukrainians? And um, while the international community has been strongly supportive of uh, Ukraine, particularly the, the Western powers, there is a sense, I believe, in many different Western capitals that um, because of the complicated history of what is, in essence, a, a colonially controlled uh, country within Europe, Ru uh, Ukraine has been passed as a, a pawn between greater empires for quite some time. And, and Kiev bulks at the idea of being told what to do, regardless of whether or not uh, they get support from the international community. So ultimately, there will have to be a negotiated peace between Kiev and Moscow. Um, but Kiev, Kiev is fighting for its independence, and when it says it's fighting for its independence, it really does mean that. It's, it does not want to take instructions from Moscow, for sure, but it also doesn't want to take uh, instructions from Brussels or from Washington. From Odessa, in Ukraine, reporter Phil Itner. Phil, thank you as always.
The death toll now 51 in the human smuggling tragedy involving migrants in San Antonio, Texas, found in sweltering heat inside of a tractor trailer. With us now is San Antonio Councilwoman Adriana Rocha Garcia, who represents the area where this tractor trailer was found. Uh, Councilwoman, thank you for for joining us on, on this day, a very tough day for your community. Uh, devastating news. Tell us about where the investigation stands right now. Yes, um, so certainly, and, uh, and and thank you for uh, everyone who has reached out and, and expressed their their uh, sorrow and, and prayers. I, I appreciate it. Um, the investigation is a criminal investigation, and it's being led by the Homeland Security Investigations. Um, so as of yesterday, it was turned over to the, the, the federals. Um, we were there immediately, of course, and, and responded, and so our local authorities were, were were on hand and um, and then turned it over to them. And like we said before, though, the emphasis here is a criminal trafficking kind of operation and people in this truck with with no water and and no way to get out. Right. And um, and so we were told that um, when and when our first responders and, and by the way, uh, you can't prepare a first responder for this. They train for everything. They don't train to find 46 stacked bodies plus 16 other bodies in need of, of uh, immediate medical attention. So, um, you know, it's a very difficult day for all of us in San Antonio. Um, we are known to be compassionate and, and caring, and this happened to be through our you know, backyard, literally. Um, so the city of San Antonio is the first major city when you um, come down from I-835, and it um, crosses uh, through the middle of District 4, which is the, the district that I represent. Um, there's, It's the second largest district in San Antonio as far as um, if we're looking in, in terms of geography. And so the areas that, that, that this was found in um, – it's just an area that nobody really goes along often. There's a, a road and maybe on the way to work, on the road, on the way home, and that's about it. It's not highly trafficked. Um, so it's unfortunately um, one of those areas where people could unfortunately get away with this. Councilwoman, this really is an ongoing issue in your community and many other border communities as well. There are well-meaning people on both sides of the, the border issue. Tell us, if you could, how bad the the problem is right now with, with trafficking, trying to uh, people who are tr- being brought illegally into this country, uh, oftentimes in very desperate, desperate situations. And you're absolutely right about that. And if we stop and um, and take a look back and, and and put ourselves in in folks' shoes, right? And so, for instance, if we think of um, our families and um, these fa- these people are trying to get ahead for their families, get a better life, make a better life for their families, give them opportunities, and so um, it it continues to be that there's uh, countries where they can't do that. So um, the fact that they still think that the American dream is worth risking their lives um, is just something that we we should all be working on, right, and focused on, and um, we really need to stop and think about that, right? Because what wouldn't you do for your family? We would all do um, the, the, the desperate thing. You mentioned that, right? So this is probably literally the last 
desperate effort to help their families. And imagine, because these, these people have to pay money, by the way, right, to get so they, they've invested maybe some savings that they maybe went without to have access to come and to be transported to the United States for their dreams to come true. And then to have to end with a death is just such a tragedy. Do we know if this truck passed through any checkpoints, you know, and just did not get flagged? We don't know yet. That's all part of the investigation. So we, we haven't been told much. Um, the, the, the most recent information that we had was an update actually from our Bear County um, officials and uh, specifically the folks that oversee um, a university hospital here in San Antonio. And we had the victims that were being treated at six different hospitals throughout San Antonio. Um, there was, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, all over from downtown to the medical center, uh, they were everywhere. And it was heat related, obviously, the, 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 the uh, treatment. So we didn't just focus on one hospital for trauma. It was heat related. And we have young folks. We had four children um, that were sent to hospitals yesterday, but they were hot to the touch. Um, that's what we were told by our fire chief. We were also told that there was no water in sight. And so um, the person that heard um, the 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 calls for help or and called immediately, our first responders are, are 911, um, I mean, I he helped save some lives, right, um, by acting quickly. And so it's just, I, I can't say this enough, it's just a terrible tragedy. San Antonio Councilwoman Adriana Rocha Garcia. CVS and Rite Aid now both limiting purchases of emergency contraceptive pills. Demand for the medication surging these days after the U.S. Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade. With us now, Wendy Parment, director of the Program on Health Policy and Law at Northeastern University. Wendy, thanks for being here. So we are talking what here? Plan B, which uh, you go and you get within one, two, three days of, of sexual activity? Precisely. These are several different forms of emergency contraceptives that uh, women can take after um, having after sexual intercourse to prevent becoming pregnant. Your reaction to this rationing of the supplies? Well, I think it speaks to the fear, the fear that's occurring. Many women are afraid that their access to these medications and that their access to abortions may be curtailed. So there's some stockpiling going on, which of course then leads the uh, retailers to ration so that the drugs are available to patients when they need it. Right, because the ruling itself does not affect these pills. These aren't abortion pills. These are pills to make sure you don't end up getting pregnant. Um, but the fear is that contraceptives will be next and what people point to the, the Thomas opinion. Well, I think the fear is actually um, a couple of different concerns that women are having, um, understandably, following the decision in Dobbs last week. One is that, you know, better use emergency contraception because abortion um, will not be available if you become pregnant, at least in many states. That's one concern. A second concern 
is that there may be states, um, we don't really fully know yet, that may try to challenge access to emergency contraception itself. Um, there are people who believe and argue that these medications are themselves abortifacients. And so states that are taking a imposing a total ban on abortion from the moment of conception may try to crack down on these drugs, um, even though um, the medical community and scientists and physicians consider them to be contraceptions. And then third, there's, you know, the uh, sort of more wider concern that their states and the courts may be coming for contraceptives themselves next. I think that that is more distant and less likely than the first two. But I think there are several different concerns that um, women have across the country. Big concerns for many women. And that leads to my next question. Just just how concerned should women in in these situations be right now with uh, with what's happened and the direction we're heading? Well, in the short term, I think that women in the states that are moving to dramatically curtail, if not completely ban access to abortion, have great reason to for concern. I mean, we see some states going very far, very fast. And, um, you know, although... There may be some short-term legal victories and maybe some victories under state law. We know the Supreme Court is not sympathetic, to put it mildly, to abortion access. So I think that many women have reason to be concerned. And I think there's also reason to be concerned that some states, or at least some states, will try to push um, the definition of abortion to cover some forms of contraceptives. The concern about going after birth control in general, I think that that is, um, I think there's less reason for concern there. Um, it, it's, it's not impossible given the court's opinions, but certainly Justice Kavanaugh and his concurring decisions said he wasn't going to go there. Uh, we know Justice Roberts is in no hurry to go too far, too fast. He says as much. So I don't think we have a Supreme Court that's ready to go after contraceptive wholesale. Um, but I do think that women um, in certain red states with these so-called, you know, moment of conception um, laws have great reason to worry. What can be on the list in those states? Are we talking like? IUDs, you get one of those and it lasts like five years or something? Yeah, I mean, there are people in the anti-abortion movement who believe and who have strongly argued that certain forms of contraceptives, um, including some IUDs, including emergency contraception, are themselves abortifacients because in some instances they can work to prevent um, implantation. So Physicians usually think a pregnancy is starting at implantation, but that's not the definition that all of these states are using. And, you know, the question is, who's going to get to decide? And, you know, given where the Supreme Court is right now, um, I think there's a reason to be concerned that if states take this exceptionally expansive view of abortion, a view, again, that is not the view shared by by the medical community, that courts may uh, go along with that right now. 
Wendy Parmets, Director of the Program on Health Policy and Law, Northeastern University. How many people do you know who have caught COVID recently, maybe even got it for a second time? Number of cases now approaching 10 million in California. That's only the official count. With us now is Dr. Peter Chin Hong, infectious disease expert at UC San Francisco. Dr. Chin Hong, thank you for joining us. It now seems easier than ever to get COVID-19. Let me ask you this. Is it people letting their guard down too much? Is it the highly infectious nature of the latest strain of Omicron? Or, this is my guess, a combination of both. Yes, uh, Chris, indeed, it's that question in the multiple choice exam where it's all of the above. So how do we need to approach this moment? Because I guess there's a couple of ways here. Number one, uh, it's way easier to catch it now. So you know what? It's inevitable. I'm going to get it. Or it's way easier to catch it now. Let's all be cautious still. I think that's the hard part, Mike. It's not one or the other. It's not like to hell with it. I'm going to get it anyway. So let's jump into that cesspool. And it's not like I'm going to stay at home and wall myself off um, like it's 2020. I think it's in between. And what it means is that we take every uh, journey, every uh, departure with a measure of, of risk and benefit. And it depends on who you are, where you come from, what the setting is. And uh, you make that judgment call, just like, you know, you decide if that those last five seconds on the, the green light across the street are going to be enough for you to get to the other side safely. For people who get Omicron, are they then safe from getting uh, any of the uh, the sub-variants of Omicron uh, in the distant near future, the distant future as well? Uh, I, I heard from one medical expert who said the, the danger area that he saw was when people would come down with Delta and uh, so they had protection against Delta, and then all of a sudden Omicron came along and they were in trouble. Well, the... the really difficult part about this, Chris, is that each of the sub-variants or flavors of Omicron have little different superpowers. So BA4 and BA5, which are the newest kids on the block, their superpower is reinfections. Um, and that means if you got uh, BA2 or BA2.12.1, you're not going to be immune from BA4 and BA5. But nevertheless, uh, you know, if you're vaccinated and boosted, even if you get breakthrough infection, you're not going to get really, really ill. Are you still rolling the dice, though, each time? Because now that we've had people get reinfected with, with different strains or what have you, are you still rolling the dice each time for long COVID? Um, I think the more and more you see uh, repeated infections, it's almost like you're getting revaccinated every time. With that uh, understanding, you're probably going to lower your risk of long COVID every time you, you roll the dice and you seem to have gotten it out okay i mean that's a generalization but one of the biggest uh nuggets of knowledge we learned in the last few months is that the risk of long covid is associated with the amount of virus in your blood and because the immune system is all activated uh they're going to kick that virus out of your blood with the memory t cells and b cells fast enough so that they don't set up shop enough for you to get long COVID or chronic symptoms. That would be like a good news thing, though, that, that it's not a cumulative, okay, I've got it twice, now I'm definitely getting long COVID. Because I think some people think, oh, it's still out there. Then every time I go out, you know, I'm still long COVID susceptible. Yes. I mean, if you really want to prevent long COVID or lower your chance, I guess the real uh, advice is not to think of zero and one, but lowering your risk. Uh, it's very unlikely that you're going to get chronic symptoms. So that is really to get up to date on your vaccines. Okay. It, 
Doctor, I'd, li- I'd like your thoughts on this because I've known people who've, who've dealt with the long COVID. That's one issue. There are people who get sick. You know, maybe they go to a wedding, they get COVID, they, they suffer for a week or so, and then they're fine. And then there are people who might get COVID, they get over it, but it kicks something in internally, be it with their heart, be it with their lungs. And a few weeks afterwards, they're hit with something um, they really weren't expecting. Yes, exactly. I think what it speaks to, Chris, is that there's a lot of um, bystander effects of COVID that don't probably aren't even called long COVID yet that we don't fully understand. Some of the ones are ones that you mentioned. People have more diabetes risks, they have more heart disease risks, more heart attacks and strokes after COVID, even if they're not really sort of like chronic symptoms beforehand. So I think there are a lot of things that we don't understand. But um, I'm hoping that, uh, again, as we get more and more immune as a population, we'll be seeing fewer and fewer of those kinds of illnesses. And hopefully at the end of the day, it'll become predictable and will become milder. Have we at least gotten over the like shame factor? Because it used to be, oh, they got COVID. And now it's like, oh, mm. they got COVID. I know it's so difficult to, you know, I think being raised Catholic myself, I have a very heightened sense of guilt. Um, <laughs> but I think it's important for people to understand that it's not a moral failure. I know tons of colleagues. I mean, when your kid, for example, gets COVID, how can you take care of your kid without getting COVID yourself? You know, so there's so many situations now where even the most responsible people in early in the pandemic can't always escape infection. Dr. Peter Chin Hong, infectious disease experts at UC San Francisco. We all need to turn that frown upside down. Yeah, the latest version of the Oracle Happiness Report, the Oracle Happiness Report, it's released this month and it shows around 45% of people surveyed around the world have not felt true happiness dating back to pre-pandemic days. The abrupt ending of the song says it all. It's, Suzanne, it's, yeah. stop. Stop. Uh, with us is Sonia Lubomirsky, professor of psychology at UC Riverside, author of the bestsellers uh, "How to The How of Happiness and the Myths of Happiness. Sonia, thanks for being with us. So I guess this is not um, out of the realm of disbelief. It's been it's been a real tough few years. It has. Um, it has. But I, what I really want to know is what the statistics are before COVID started. Right. Is this is this is a survey that's asking people to reflect on their experiences during COVID. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So are you wondering if we were also depressed to begin with? <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> lots and lots of studies that I've seen actually show uh, surprisingly um, little change in overall happiness or well-being uh, across the years of COVID. Like you'd think there'd be a lot bigger change. And this survey looks like it's asking people to make some kind of retrospective judgments, like you know, how have you been feeling the last couple of years? And so it's really drawing on people's preconceptions or sort of schemas or stereotypes about how they, they think they should respond, right? As opposed to just asking them, are you happy now? It's asking them, well, like, well, how have you felt, you know, last, you know, during COVID? And so it's drawing, I think, for more negative responses than, than it would have if it didn't frame the questions that way. Well, let me ask you this. Should people expect to be happy on a regular basis or is that simply asking too much? I think it's definitely asking too much. Uh, on the other hand, surveys show that people tend to score um, above neutral sort of in happiness, like at any moment in time. So most of us are happy. There's actually a famous article that's called Most People Are Happy, right? So uh, most people are kind of above average. Um, 
Um, but yeah, certainly asking too much to feel happy all the time, especially during these sort of trials and tribu- tribulations that we've all been through recently. Do you think we have a bias against it? I mean, do you automatically think that you're not as happy as maybe you are when you then you if you really take stock of everything? Then hey, maybe it's not that bad. Uh, exactly. I actually I, I study gratitude, which is um, you know a way of framing your life as you know in a more positive way, right? Like yes. Lots and lots of bad things are happening in the world, uh, and yet, you know, I'm still healthy, or I still have my family, I still have my job, or, you know, I, I have friends that really care for me. So it, sometimes it takes an effort to sort of maintain happiness. Um, it's, not, it's not always easy. So, because you mentioned gratitude, I was going to be a, a psychologist in a former life. So I took years of, <laughs> years of this in school and I took a class on gratitude. And, you know, it was the whole find a few things a day and focus on that. And even, even all of us in the class would roll our eyes when this professor said this. So how hard is that really to actually grab onto those things? Because we couldn't do it. <laughs> we were sitting there. Uh, I, well, yeah, I want to know who your professor was. Um, so we, we've actually been doing research on gratitude for the last 20 years or so. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's actually surprisingly not so difficult to just kind of, whether it's a, every day or once a week, to sort of review your life or, or to write notes. I, I actually prefer, instead of writing a list of things I'm grateful for, but to actually pick people in my life um, that, that I'm grateful to. And maybe you can write a text or an email or a letter to them. And it really makes you realize, you know, how much good is in your life. But I, I, I should say, it doesn't mean that you should focus on positives all the time because there's lots of bad stuff too but you know it's, it's it's a good exercise to to be grateful in addition to sort of seeing the injustice or the things in in the world that we need to sort of work to improve what about the issue of politics these days and that we're so divided in, in so many ways in this country be it over issues like the abortion decision last week the january 6th committee hearing we had today uh, what's happening around the world right now what's happening in ukraine how much does that affect the happiness level in this country as well? Yeah, I mean, it certainly does. Um, although our country is very individualist or individualistic. So we tend to kind of um, focus on our own lives more when we rate our own happiness rather than like the life that sort of what's happening in the world, although it could certainly affect our affect for the day. Uh, actually, my when you when you told me about the survey, my first question was, was like, when was it done? Was it done like last week or this week? Because lots of stuff is happening, as you mentioned. The road decision, the concealed weapons decision, Ukraine, you know, that, that makes people depressed. But but again, you know, given that, you know, the U.S. and sort of Western culture tends to be fairly individualist, we, we tend to focus more on like what's going on, like what's, what is happening with me, 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 right? What's going on in our, my own life? Um, and that tends to influence my happiness judgment more than what's going on in the country, although certainly both things are, are relevant. Are we also too trained to get, like, quick dopamine hits, like, oh, what makes you happy? Online shopping or looking <laughs> at TikTok. That's not the solution. Ice cream. <laughs> Ice cream. <laughs> well, that one does make everybody happy. Yeah, everybody. <laughs> right. Well, you know, when you, when you, if you just sort of text people randomly throughout the day and ask people, you know, are you happy now? Are you happy now? You know, obviously, they're, they're that, that aspect, that question is going to be influenced by what's they're doing now. You know, social media. There's, you know, building research on this doesn't tend to make people so happy, and actually may even, you know, interfere with happiness, especially for certain subgroups of the population. And when I say subgroup of the population, I'm talking about teenagers and specifically teenage girls that seem to be kind of harmed by, by, by those kinds of activities. Sonia Lubomirsky, professor of psychology, UC Riverside, the bestsellers, the how of happiness and the myths of happiness. Go find something to smile about.